Will you take the infallible, inspired, authoritative, and all-sufficient word of the living God and open it up to John's gospel once again from the passage that we read a few minutes ago. John chapter 1. This morning I would like to address the topic of Jesus, the divine word. Let me read these first five, five verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. When I was growing up, I had some heroes outside of Bible characters. Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, and especially Robin Hood. I loved Robin Hood because I loved to shoot bows and arrows and all of those things. Oh boy, I remember I had the little outfit and the whole deal. I know the theology of Robin Hood is probably not all that great, but I remember the man being devoted to a king that would one day come. And I have to tell you that that's how I feel today. I'm waiting for my king to return. Now, I'm not robbing the rich to give to the poor, but I'm waiting for my king to return. And I want to talk to you about my king, my savior, this morning. You will recall that when Paul came to the wicked city of Corinth, he never adjusted his message to in any way appeal to the culture. Instead, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And of course, that's the only message that saves. Our American culture is every bit as wicked as Corinth. I was listening to some of the news reports even this last week, and it's just hard to believe the amount of sex trafficking that's going on here in Middle Tennessee. Drug abuse, pornography, all manner of immorality. I understand that it was even on the halftime show of the Super Bowl. The LGBTQ agenda being forced upon us. And here of late, there's this unbiblical belief that same-sex attraction is not morally culpable. That's a whole message in and of itself, but that is a lie. That somehow that is an unchangeable sexual orientation. And now I was hearing from some other so-called experts that research proves, which, by the way, whenever you hear that, there's a red flag. Here's what I'm looking at, and here's what they're looking at. Research proves that pedophilia is an unchangeable sexual orientation, like heterosexuality or homosexuality, and that we are not responsible for our feelings, for we do not choose them, but we're just responsible for our behaviors. Folks, this is where it's going, rapidly. Dear ones, our culture needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to understand who Christ is, what he has done, what he is doing now, and what he's going to do. And as the church of the living God, Paul says we are to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And if you can't come to a place like this and hear the truth about who Jesus is, there's a big problem. In fact, in that same text in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 15, Paul says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. 
And then there's a section there that was basically an ancient hymn that they sang. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. In other words, salvation and righteousness in Christ. Then he says, he who was revealed in the flesh, there's the incarnation, was vindicated in the spirit, there's the resurrection, seen by angels, and we know that both the elect and the fallen angels became witnesses to the victory of his resurrection. The next phrase is proclaimed among the nations. There's the proclamation of the gospel. Believed on in the world, there's the power of the gospel to save. Taken up in glory. And there's the ascension. The magnificent truths that are subsets of each line would would take multiple lifetimes to proclaim. But I wish to focus on one concept, one doctrine that is foundational to all others this morning, and that is the deity of Jesus Christ. You might say, why now? I thought we were going to 2 Corinthians. We are, just hang on. But I have to tell you, I was so struck this week by some of the things that I heard and read, some of the conversations I had, that I, I was just sickened by the relentless attacks on the person and the work of Christ. So my heart is just filled with, with frustration, with righteous indignation to, to see my Savior and my Lord and my King so dishonored. And I've also learned that some young pastors coming out of seminary are now embracing errant views related to Christ. I believe that for the most part, it's unwitting, they're ignorant. Ideas like, well, Jesus had to get used to being God when he was a boy. Silly stuff like that. They obviously do not understand the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ. That Jesus was at the same time human and divine. Big term, you may not have heard it before, some of you have. Hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, we read, He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Hypostasios, a term from hypostasis, referring to his substance and his essence. Little church history, in A.D. 325, at the Council of Nicaea, They affirmed scripture's revelation of the deity of Christ, that he was truly God. And then in A.D. 451, at the Council of Chalcedon, they agreed that Jesus was at the same time human and divine, involving a hypostatic union of the two natures without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. So the hypostatic union consists of the two natures of Christ in one theanthropic person, one God-man. Jesus was a theanthropon, the only theanthropon that has ever existed. In his incarnation, he came to experience humanity, but he did not exist in two persons. He is but one person with two distinct and perfect natures, the divine and the human. So it is false to say that when Jesus was a little boy, he had to grow into his divinity. That's just ridiculous. That he had to get used to being God. No, he was and he is and he always will be God. And it is false to say, as some charismatics do, that Jesus laid aside his divinity in the incarnation and performed miracles only as a man in right relationship with God, not as God. It's commonly known as the kenosis heresy. Moreover, our culture's mockery of Jesus Christ through its insistence that somehow we were not created, but that we just evolved... Such a blasphemy obviously denies that Jesus was the creator and is the sustainer and the redeemer and the consummator of all things. And it's certain proof that men 
who believe that are spiritually dead at enmity with God and will one day be pronounced guilty in the day of judgment unless they repent. So it's my earnest desire to exalt Christ this morning. I want to remind you of who he really is. As Christians, we walk by faith, not by feelings, and the object of our faith is the triune God, and we see the triune God most vividly in the face of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is both life and light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Dear friend, we have no faith apart from an understanding of and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no greater subject in all the world than the subject of Christ. We want to be like Paul, who longed to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, Philippians 3.10. Now, as we approach our text, let me remind you that John, along with James and Peter, was in the inner circle of the 12 apostles. To, and, <clears throat> excuse me, no one knew him any better, no one knew Jesus any better, nor loved him any more than John. And we see this most vividly, for example, in the upper room at the Last Supper where, where John reclined upon the bosom of Jesus. He, was also, he also stood by him at the cross. He also entered into the tomb and so forth. And for this reason, John was able to say with, with unreserved conviction that indeed Jesus was the Son of God. And John also was the, was the inspired author of the three epistles that bear his name, as well as the book of Revelation, which was revealed to him by the very one that he loved so dearly, because Revelation is the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the revealing of Jesus Christ. And each of the four Gospels tell the story of Jesus. Matthew describes him as the sovereign king. Mark as the suffering servant and Luke as the Son of Man, and John as the Son of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke commonly call the synoptic Gospels because they provide a synopsis of Jesus' life are are different than John, uh, John's Gospel. Ninety percent of John's Gospel cannot be found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel focuses on the supernatural aspects Of the Son of God. He doesn't focus on the earthly history of Jesus, but on his heavenly history, on his eternality, that he was indeed self existent. He is self existent. He is the omnipotent, omniscient, immutable, sovereign creator, sustainer, redeemer, and consummator of all things. He is the second member of the triune Godhead, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us that we might see his glory, that he might save sinners, reconciling sinners to God through faith in his work upon the cross. John describes him like with terms like the bread of life, the living water, the good shepherd who would give his life for the sheep, the one who will raise the dead in the last day, the Messiah, King of Israel. In fact, John's gospel is really 21 chapters of, of inspired truth that validates Jesus' claim to be God in human flesh, fully God, yet fully human. The incarnate Christ who was able to say, I and the Father are one. This is the greatest evangelistic tract ever written, by the way. That's why... I give it to unbelievers. Unbelievers many times will say, well, where should I start? Read the Gospel of John. Great place to start. Because here the Gospel is unveiled in all of its glory. And for this reason, John's Gospel is often referred to as the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. What was pictured in the sacrificial system of of the Old Covenant is here described in final reality. In the new covenant, Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
who is the substitute for all who will believe in him. And you will recall that also when he was on the cross, the veil was torn, allowing access for believers to to come into the presence of God and now be hidden in Christ, who was the propitiation, the satisfaction of divine wrath for our sins. And the purpose of John's gospel is summarized in chapter 20 and verse 31. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And oh, dear friends, what hope we have in Christ and what horror awaits those who reject him. The Apostle Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians 3, or chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, that the gospel is veiled. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And one of Satan's primary strategies, one of his greatest and most deceptive schemes to, to, to blind believers is to distort the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially concerning his deity. One of the characteristics of Antichrist that John gives in 1 John 2 is their denial of the Son. Verse 22, who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Anyone who denies Christ, therefore, is an antichrist. All lies are alien to the truth. And John has in mind the greatest of all lies, and that lie is that Jesus is not who he claimed to be. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 11 says that during the tribulation, quote, God shall send strong delusion that they, referring to unbelievers, should believe the lie. Well, what's the lie? That Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. If a man does not believe Jesus is God in human flesh, he is antichrist. That is John's doctrinal test. That's the acid test of man's salvation. 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God, And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. Boy, is that not the truth. You go downtown Nashville and you ask the average person, do you believe that Jesus is the creator, the son of God, the savior of the world, that there's salvation in no other name other than his name, and that if you do not believe He will be the judge that will sentence people to an eternal hell and that he's returning again in power and great glory as king of kings. But before you could even get that out, they're laughing. How tragic. Folks, we don't need to be angry with these people. We need to love these people because they are blinded by their sin. They're blinded by Satan. Salvation is based on one's answer to this question is Jesus God in human flesh. Second John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Who don't, do not acknowledge that. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Uh, some Gnostics in ancient days said that he was just a phantom. And the, the Corinthians church had some Gnostics that said Jesus was just a man, that the Christ spirit came on him and then left. They were starting to deal with that type of silliness. And, and those were the kinds of lies that John was having to combat in his epistles. Deceivers that deny the incarnation and therefore deny the deity of Christ. And such denial is, of course, the basis of liberalism and modernism and and some of the cults. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ was created billions of years ago as the angel Archangel Michael. And it was through this created angel that all other things in the universe were created. 
Jesus is considered a mighty God, but he is not God almighty like the Father. He is a lesser God in their mind. Jesus, therefore, is not to be worshipped like the Father. They say that after his crucifixion, Jesus was raised from the dead as an invisible spirit creature with no physical body. Christ's spiritual and invisible second coming took place in 1914. And he has been ruling as king since then through the Watchtower Society. Folks, know this, the next time they come knocking on your door, and I'm just scratching the surface. Mormons believe that the universe is governed by a head God and his council, that God has goddess wives, that God is limited by a physical body. There are many gods and that Jesus was created a spirit brother of Lucifer and Adam. They deny the Trinity. They deny that Jesus Christ was the eternal son of God. They believe in millions of gods. In fact, if you ask them, they don't even know how many there might be. When Mormons die, couples who were baptized in the temple in Salt Lake, who have been faithful Mormons, get their own planet where they can enjoy celestial sex forever and produce more gods. Folks, Mormonism, by the way, is rooted in sexual deviancy. They are not Christians. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young were into polygamy and you know the rest of the history. Muslims, let let me add one other thing. The Mormons also believe the Bible had to be corrected in the writings of Joseph Smith and the Pearl of Great Price, the doctrines and the covenants and so forth. Muslims believe that Allah alone is the one true deity. He has neither mother nor father. Uh, Similarly, he has no sons or daughters. He is not a trinity. He is not the God of the Old Testament, and he is not the God of Christianity. Allah, according to Islam, is the God of all humanity. And according to Islamic literature, Allah sent thousands of prophets to the earth, Jesus just being one of them, but Muhammad is the greatest of them all, and so forth. Of Of course, all of these claims are false. These are doctrines of demons. And there are hundreds of other false religious systems that are always rooted in a denial of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this subject is so important. And I know in many ways I'm preaching to the choir, but you need to hear it again to celebrate these truths, to have them in your mind and in your heart. So as we look at this, I want to just look at three things. I want you to see that, number one, Jesus... Uh, pre-existed with God. Number two, he coexisted with God. And number three, he self-existed with God. These are the truths that emerge from this text. So let's be transported into the realm of the transcendent, elevated beyond the temporal cares of this life. Let's just be lifted high into the mysteries of the eternal that God has revealed to us in his word. You know, folks, we tend to live too low. We're too earthbound, right? (laughs) We're too materialistic. But I'll tell you, on your deathbed, and I've been at the side of many people who are dying, none of what happened here on earth is really going to matter. Suddenly, all that matters is your relationship with God, the one that you are about, about to encounter. And the purpose of this sacred volume is to prepare you for what really matters, And by the way, as you are prepared for what really matters, you begin to loosen your grip upon this life. And you just long to go into glory, don't you? Sure you do. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ means that that, that we have rich communion with him. And and, and these beliefs help us us just grasp the the transcendent and, and condescending love of Christ for us. That we might more intelligently adore him, and more faithfully serve him. Now, we're not going to look at these, but verses 1 through 18 of John's gospel serve as a prologue that summarizes all that will follow, namely, according to chapter 20 and verse 31, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he may have life, we may have life in his name. So first of all, I want you to notice what the Spirit of God tells us through his inspired record. 
Number one, that he pre-existed with God. Notice verse one, the very first phrase, in the beginning was the word. The word is translated logos in the original language. Now, it's curious, isn't it? Why, why use that word? Why not say in the beginning was Jesus? That would have seemed a lot clearer. And we know it refers to Jesus because in verse 14 it says, and the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. So, so why didn't you just say that? Well, there's two reasons. By the way, never set in judgment of Scripture. That, that's, that goes without saying, I hope. But you must understand that the philosophers of that day used the Greek term logos to express what they believed to be the, the non-personal supernatural force or energy that was the source of everything in the universe, uh, a, a, a principle that held everything together. I'll tell you, a good way of thinking about this is think about Star Wars. Star Wars, remember that, that silly little... You know, these people flying around, uh, the force, may the force be with you always. That's about the depth of most people's theology these days. But that's the idea. That's what they thought of when they thought of Logos. The ancient Stoics believed that the universe is controlled by Logos, which is a sense of, of reason or, or law. And, and they also held the belief um, of, of pantheism, of, of kind of a pantheistic materialism, if you will, in which the universe l- was linked with God and, and was permeated and controlled by what they called a, a fiery substance, which was called logos. Boy, that sounds rich. You know, that's how people are that don't know Christ. It's so sad. They hear these say, wow, really? And then they begin to grab a hold of it. And before you know it, They're wearing weird things and beating on tambourines, you know. Later, Logos was used to define reason, which they believed governed the world. They even mixed it with popular Greek mythology and allegorized uh, some of their gods, the gods of their popular religion, and made them personifications or, or abstractions of Logos. For example, Hermes was called Logos. So you get the idea of what John was dealing with. And by the time of the first century, even Judaism had been influenced by Stoic philosophy. And during that time, we see the personification of such divine attributes as wisdom, which was also called the word, the Logos. The Hellenistic Jews personified both wisdom and word and regarded them as divine agents in creation. And Philo taught that the the Logos is both, quote, pattern and, quote, instrument of God in creation. Now, obviously, this is indicative of man's foolish philosophical reasoning, the musings of man. And... and, (laughs) By the way, it's interesting, and I, I noticed this in academia over the years. <laughs> Man's reasoning will always lead you away from God. It'll never lead you to him. If that were not so, then colleges and universities would be spitting out followers of Christ. And you see just the opposite. First Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And the foolishness of the message preached refers to the foolishness of Christ being the son of God who came and gave his life as a ransom for all who would believe in him. So the spirit of God knew all of this, obviously, and he inspired John to pin the perfect word to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, Logos. Logos is a person. It is not some invisible, abstract, non-personal force. But I believe there's a second reason why the term Logos is used, and that is because God has created us as as his image bearers to comprehend and, and to speak in language. And language consists of words, expressions of thought, And what is John doing here? Well, he is revealing to us in words that the Son of God, as the Word of God, is the one who reveals the very mind and heart of God. 
In fact, John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And we wouldn't understand that without words, right? Jesus is the word that explains these things. John 14.24, The word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 15, 15, all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. But we must bear in mind that the concept of logos was not exclusive to the Greeks. The Jews also understood that the word of the Lord was the source of divine power and of divine wisdom. Genesis 15:1, the word of the Lord came to Abram. You're speaking about the promised son and, and the Abrahamic covenant. Exodus 24, the words of the Lord came to all the people. And there in that context, you have the, the reaffirmation of their covenant with God to obey his commandments. And, and you just see this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. So back to the text. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. In other words, in the beginning was a personal God with a personality, the one who is the source and revelation of all truth and all wisdom. In the beginning. Now, when was that? Well, uh, I guess it's in the beginning, right? In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. So the word, this personal God, who's the source of all revelation and truth and wisdom, already existed at creation. This means he pre-existed with God. This means he preceded all that exists in the created universe. So therefore... He cannot be a created being. It's technical, but it's important. The word was, it's in the imperfect tense. It's the imperfect tense of the Greek verb to be, which is a me, which denotes continuous action. This is very important exegetically, because what it's saying here is that this logos is or or I should say this Logos was continuously existing in the beginning when everything else came into existence. That's what the Greek text is telling us. It's much more precise than English. And the verb to be, translated was, has profound implications. You see, this was the title that Jesus used to describe himself. For example, in John 8, 58, Remember, he, he told the unbelieving Jews, before Abraham, I was born, or before Abraham was born, I am. So that, that's part of the, the to be verb. In other words, he refers to himself in the present continuous tense. Let, let, let me help you understand this, and this is so important. He's saying that I am because I always have been and I always will exist. That's who I am. This is a title indicating self-existence. There's never been a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. Moses asked, you will recall, what shall I tell the people when they ask, what is your name? Exodus 3.14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, tell them that my name is I am because I am the self-existent eternal one who is and who always will be. And we see this title used repeatedly in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true and living way. I am the true vine. So, in the beginning was, again, was is the imperfect tense of the verb to be, from which we get I am. In the beginning was the word. The point is, in the beginning, the great I am was already in existence because there has never been a time when he has not existed. 
Verse 1, John goes on, and the word was with God. Prostan theon in Greek. Can this be stated any more clearly? The, the word was with God. The, the Greek, by the way, is far more expressive and informative than, than the, the translation in, in, in the English. The, the phrase prostantheon in Greek literally means face-to-face. Face-to-face. So the phrase pictures two eternal beings, the word of God, the, I should say the word and God, facing each other. Enjoying meaningful, rich relationship as they commune with one another. And this concept is repeated again in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Once again, we see John, the inspired writer, affirming that the word preexisted with God at creation. Folks, remember this the next time somebody uses our Lord's name in vain. Remember this the next time somebody mocks Jesus. Remember this the next time you see the babe in the manger. Remember this the next time you see him hanging on the cross. But lest we foolishly assume that the word was something less than God, as the cultists believe, notice he goes on to say, and the word was God. So he not only preexisted with God, he coexisted, number two. He coexisted with God. And the word was God. Now, how can anyone miss this? I mean, this is the clearest declaration in all of Scripture of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note, it does not say, and the word was a God, as many heretics want to insist. And an errant interpretation, which, by the way, just betrays a blatant disregard for the rules of Greek grammar. I won't get into that. But all through Scripture, we read that Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity, possessing all of the divine attributes, all of the the excellencies of God. And in these, he is is co-equal, he is consubstantial and co-eternal with the Father. And anyone that denies the deity of Christ and his full equality with the Father is a heretic. John 10, 1, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This this doctrine is so serious, folks. It is so non-negotiable that we are instructed to be uncharitable to those who deny it. In fact, hospitality for travelers in the first century was crucial for survival, but John warned the believers that they were to show no hospitality to teachers who denied the deity of Christ. He said in Second John 10, if anyone come to you and does not bring this teaching, in other words, the biblical teaching concerning Christ, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Folks, we have to guard against letting this stuff in our house through our Internet, through our television, through literature. And even when these people come to your door, I'm always kind to them, but I always will tell them, dear friend, you have been deceived. You believe a lie. And I'll give them some quick thing of the gospel. They get real uncomfortable, especially when they find out I'm a pastor, you know, because they like to prey upon people who don't know the truth. Folks, this is also so important when you think of studying Bible doctrine. You know, I know I hear people say, oh my, you go to that church and you get all this heavy theology. We need heavy theology. We need doctrine. We need to grow up. We need to learn these truths. They need to be a part of our vocabulary, a part of our mind, a part of our heart. We need to teach these things to our children and stop being so ignorant which is so indicative of our culture. We dumb everything down to to a point where we don't know anything. Paul said in Galatians 1 and verse 7, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. 
As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. This is important stuff. Well, back to our text. In verse 1 again, and the word was God. In other words, Jesus preexisted and coexisted with God in the beginning as the eternal preexistent word who enjoys now, as he did then, face-to-face communion and divine life with the Father, who himself is God. We see this, the truth of, of the eternal presence of, uh, of the Son with the Father, even before the incarnation in the Lord's Prayer. Remember in John seventeen five, he says, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And again in verse 24, Thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, what astounding truths. So Jesus preexisted with God, he coexisted with God, and third and finally, he self-existed with God. And of course, this is logical, isn't it? I mean, if he preexisted and coexisted with God, he must also be self-existent. And he proves this in verse 3, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I mean, think about it. (laughs) It's almost laughable. I mean, you cannot be the creator of all things unless you yourself are self-existent. An uncreated being. Beloved, here's the point. The Lord Jesus Christ is the self-existent, eternally existent, uncreated creator. All things came into being through This divine word, this divine logos, it is stated both positively from the viewpoint of the past, says all things came into being, and then negatively from the viewpoint of the the present, apart from him, nothing, which in the Greek means not a single thing, came into being that has come into being. Folks, Jesus Christ is your creator. Get that. But there's more. Christ himself was not created. He was eternally. The imperfect tense, once again, to express continuous action. By the way, it's used four times in verses 1 and 2, so we won't miss this. (laughs) It's amazing. All things were created by him. We read this in other passages. Hebrews 1, 2. uh, Remember in that text it says that God has now spoken through his son, through whom he made the world. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Everything comes from the Father, and all believers exist for the Father, but everything is by the Son, and everyone who comes to the Father comes through the Son. We see this vividly, verse 4, in him was life. Literally, life existed continually in him. He didn't acquire life from some other source. It didn't have to be given to him through some other deity. The divine word was always or has always been in existence. Now, I know your hard drives are beginning to smoke, right? Who was it? Henry, one of them laughs and I go, I mean, that's where your mind begins to go, right? I think it was Henry that was, that was mocking me on that. That's great. I, I like that. But that, that's how you, I mean, th- folks, this is so far beyond us. But this is the truth. But it gets better. I want you to notice when he says, in him was life. This is very important. You won't see it in English. You will in Greek. Life is not bios, B-I-O-S referring to biological life, material life, that of flesh and blood, which, which is certainly a form of life, but a much lower form of life than what is being described here. He doesn't use the term bios, he uses the term zoe. Zoe, spiritual life, a mystical reality of being beyond anything that we can comprehend. This is not organic life. This is not flesh and blood life. 
This is way beyond DNA. This speaks of, of a, a principle of, or reality of life that exists beyond any kind of created organisms, as exceedingly complex as they might be. Indeed, he is the source of biological life, even though God is not physical in any way. But here he is speaking, friends, of something infinitely more complex than than what we can see and feel and experience. Here he is speaking of life that exists within the realm of the spiritual, the, the, the supernatural realm of the angels. This is a life principle that has and will always exist eternally, even after the biological, even after the material forms of life dies. It's staggering, friends. This is my Jesus. This is the king I'm waiting for. And you are too, if you know and love him. I am the way, the truth, and the, the life. There it is. We exist by him and through him. Paul spoke of him, remember, uh, to the men of Athens who worship the unknown God in ignorance. And he says he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and they should, quote, grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then this phrase is so powerful. For in him we live and move and exist. I'll never forget when I held my sister's hand as she breathed her final breaths and the angels came and took her into the presence of her Lord. I remember in that moment, I, I was thinking about this because it took a while for her breathing to finally stop. Some of you have been in those situations. Were it not for Christ, I don't know how we could survive. But I remember thinking to myself that it's in him that we live and we move and we exist. In him is life. Verse 4, again, he goes on to say, and the life was, once again, there's the Greek, continuously, eternally, the light of men. The life was continually or eternally the light of men. The point is when life is manifested, it shines forth as light in the spiritual realm. And of course, Christ is the source. He is the embodiment of spiritual life and emanating from him is the fullness of his essence. And all of his glorious attributes are contained within the light of his Shekinah. Whenever life was materialized, the life of God, who is spirit, whenever it was materialized, it did so in blazing form of light, the dazzling light of his Shekinah, the ineffable brilliance of his presence. Remember John, Peter, James, and John saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Saul, who became Paul, saw it on the road to Damascus. And in John's gospel, what we see is that life and light cannot be separated. In that light is the manifestation of life. And both are of the same essence, even as God cannot be separated from or by the word. John eight twelve, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And we see the same parallel in Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Isn't it amazing when you think about it? It's by God's sovereign grace alone that he raises the spiritually dead. That's what he did with me. That's what he did with you if you know and love Christ. He breathed life into these spiritual cadavers. He, he, he caused us to suddenly see the light of the glory of Christ, the light of the gospel, the truth of salvation. Verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it, which literally means nothing could overcome it. No opposing power is able to seize the light 
so as to in any way hinder its radiance. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. He entered Satan's domain of darkness and this wicked world. But this darkness cannot extinguish the light of his life and those that he saves. What an amazing truth. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13 1 John 2.8, because the divine word came into the world, we read that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Oh, dear friends, what hope, what help we have in Christ. And in closing, I just want to say, I, I hope you know my Savior, my King, and the Savior and King of so many that are in this room today. But John tells us this in verse 12, as many as received him, John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Which means to believe in the reputation of his person and of his work. Dear friend, if you're here today without Christ, you simply must yield your allegiance to the word. Trust in him to be your savior because you cannot save yourself. Acknowledge his claims, confess him as Lord and worship him because this is what it means to receive him and to believe in his name. I pray that you will do this today. And for those of us who know and love Christ, let's just be reminded afresh of who he really is what he has done for us, and let's be bold in proclaiming his name because the king's coming again. And I want to be found faithful, watching, and ready. Don't you? Sure you do. And what a joy it is to serve him. And what a day it will be when we bask in the presence of his light forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May we grasp them and see them through the eyes of faith as you have revealed them so clearly to us through your word. And may these great truths animate our hearts to not only deeper worship, but more devoted service as we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will save many through our efforts to be salt and light. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.